Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Richard M. Weaver said, The most portentous general event of our time is the steady obliteration of those distinctions which create society. Rational society is a mirror of the logos, and this means that it has a formal structure which enables apprehension. The preservation of society is therefore directly linked with the recovery of true knowledge. For the success of restoration, it cannot be too often said that society and mass are contradictory terms, and that those who seek to do things in the name of mass are the destroyers in our midst. If society is something which can be understood, it must have structure. If it has structure, it must have hierarchy. Against this metaphysical truth, the declamations of the Jacobins break in vain. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. distinction? What is hierarchy? What have they to do with one another? What have they to do with the family and society? Today we continue our Exploring Weaver series. Joining us again as our guide on this journey is Dr. Jim Tolman, rhetoric teacher at Wittenberg Academy and author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Dr. Tolman, Weaver's essay, Distinction and Hierarchy, takes us back to the collection of essays called Ideas Have Consequences. There is so much here. I found myself while I was preparing for this episode, underlining my highlighting just so I could emphasize the importance of lines within all of my highlighting. Once again, Weaver's writing is so prescient. Our times, as well as, you know, all of the times since Weaver, need to hear this and need to discuss this. And the church needs this. Certainly our society needs this, but we need this. I had students talk to me that way in the 90s, in the early 2000s, 2001 in particular, in the 2000 teens, and now we're doing this. And I pray that what we do through the Wittenberg Hour really endures and gets people interested and helps uh, promote interest, not only in Richard Weaver, but in rhetorical studies, because we need rhetorical studies to be revived in our time so that there can be reasoned discourse, so that we can cultivate a more civil society and so that really i know this sounds grandiose but so freedom can endure because without means of persuasion and mutual respect and reason discourse engaging one another in goodwill you can't have a civil society 
What Weaver did in the introduction to Ideas Have Consequences is show that once we took that turn as a society toward nominalism and then focused so much on empiricism that the metaphysical and the value dimension and really the realm of the spirit was first placed uh down the list of values and priorities, but then ultimately we confined ourselves to the empirical realm. That's how we got to where the levelers, as Weaver calls them in distinction and hierarchy, the egalitarians, or he actually uses the term equalitarians. That's not very common, but in his day, uh, you know, it was kind of a 50-50 proposition. Sometimes you called them equalitarians and sometimes you called them egalitarians. And he came up with the notion of the levelers. And the influence that they had by erasing distinction and hierarchy has reduced over time to these statues must come down because these are distinctions that privilege these people about whom the statues were built and that worldview is oppressive and so on and so forth. And so that's why Weaver is so important today. And that's why distinction and hierarchy is so important today. And it speaks to us because the people that are engaging in this kind of outrageous activity that is subversive of our culture are subversives. They are Marxists and they are intent on bringing things down because they hate tradition and they hate religion. They hate. And so... To try to engage in rhetoric with people like that, to try and engage in rhetoric with people who are of that mind, who don't believe in the truth anyway, all they really believe in is power. The best thing to do is to arrest people like that and restore order. Yeah. And in order to have order, you have to have distinction and hierarchy. Very well put. And you know what? This is a podcast. This is for posterity. We will be talking about something different the next time this podcast gets a lot of airplay because the cycles repeat themselves. This is something we've never seen before, to be sure. But that's just because Antifa and their ilk have been emboldened by... Lots and lots of support from celebrities and media and academics. And so it's just something we're going through. But 10 years from now, there will be something else. And sure. Jesus, Jesus will reign supreme in that hour as well. Amen. Unless he comes first. Come and, Lord and, Jesus quickly. Yes, what's going on here and now, and Weaver is really only good for this life, and rhetoric is only useful for this life. It's part of what shall pass away, and I thank God for that. I look forward to 
the time when we no longer have to engage in this sort of uh, dialogue and these activities and we'll be more inclined to be praising the creator of the universe and he'll wipe away every tear. Amen. One of the features of our time today should probably be discussing some weaverisms. Sure. We need to understand what he means by things like metaphysical dream, spoiled child psychology, the way he talks about progress. You can tell, can't you, when he's talking about progress, there was a big dialogue going on in his time about progress being something about which people only genuflect to question progress was unacceptable in his day. It was called a God term. And that comes from a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Burke, God terms and devil terms. So for Weaver, the God term was progress. And he has a number of cultural critiques that he's done where he shows the limitations of progress and does a critique of modernity that's really interesting. And it kind of shows that there is a mode of progressivism that is based on Marxist ideology. And then there's a kind of a progressive in a different sense of the term. There's a progressive look at the bad fruit of better living through science and empiricism and science and reason, right? Scientism and rationalism and all of those sorts of ideals that, of course, we as conservatives, we celebrate data and science and reason, but we don't make them a worship and we don't genuflect to progress, for example, okay? Unquestioned loyalty to progress. So this notion of God terms and devil terms is really important to pick up on in Weaverian thought. And I think it raises a really cool question. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this over the years. If progress was the God term in Weaver's day, now that we're in post-modernity, what do you suppose would be the God term in our time? I think there's one that stands out above all else. Tolerance. Everybody realizes that intuitively when you point it out. And that helps people understand what was meant by God terms for people today to question tolerance makes you a bigot, a racist, a homophobe, whatever. And you're just not supposed to do that. Polite people do not do that. Do not defend intolerance. So that's the notion of God terms and devil terms. It comes from Kenneth Burke. Weaver borrows from it. He actually footnotes him in one of his other works. I think it's in the Ethics of Rhetoric. And the God term in Weaver's day was progress. And so he was a modern conservative who was challenging the notion of unfettered progress. Here's how that translates. For example, in Ideas Have Consequences, in the mid-40s, when two cars in every garage was an ideal and the state highway system was being built, right? Right. 
travel was all the rage. That's when travel trailers showed up on the scene. And he challenged in Ideas Have Consequences in the name of speed and convenience, having travel and disregarding the notion of place, but having travel, speed and convenience. And he actually puts it in these terms. We sacrifice lives at the altar of speed and convenience and don't even really question it. So why is that profound? Because if you think about it, many of the times when you're searching for a means of trying to balance lives taken, for example, in a pandemic, lives lost in a pandemic, lives lost in a war effort, etc. You try to think of a means of balancing it with some other loss of life. And every time we get into these arguments, I immediately, because I'm a weaver file, I immediately think of traffic fatalities. Traffic fatalities are somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 per year. And I think Weaver was right. We don't even think that much <clears throat> about the lives lost in the name of speed and convenience and motion. And it does give one pause to realize that we make our decisions in the policy arena and in life on the basis of values that are oftentimes taken for granted. And occasionally you need to stop and question those unquestioned values. And distinction and hierarchy is a wonderful way of thinking about value hierarchies that are necessary for coherent and well-ordered life together that just are not really consciously reflected upon all that much. It's interesting that you bring up this idea of speed and convenience really hit me in terms of distinction and hierarchy, especially as it relates to the family. And you think about all of the conveniences that added speed that supported the family not acting as a unit. You think about things yeah. like the microwave and the dishwasher and mm -hmm. all of these things that, and, and Weaver gets into the family as obviously the, the prime example of distinction and hierarchy. Hopefully it doesn't hit too close to home, but I think I could apply the same reasoning to education online education can be done in such a way. I think Wittenberg Academy tries to avoid that, but it can be done in a way that really strongly emphasizes convenience, speed, and eliminates a lot of the sacrifice related to education and the whole notion of credentialing. Oh my goodness. And we have hopefully at Wittenberg Academy, taken great pains to minimize the loss of human interaction 
that sometimes can become a pitfall with online education. You know, yeah. how do how do you do online education and remain as human as possible? And that has yeah. really been one of the things that we've strived for over the years. And in doing so, you'll find that we're not as flashy as other options out there. But I would hope we are more human. And that's... Well, that's Lutheran. That's being Lutheran in a nutshell. And that's education in a nutshell. The purpose of education is to make humans more human. Yes. Human excellence is the aim of liberal arts learning. And you can't shortchange it. Hey, I was in a conference the other day and the question came up after my presentation. I am teaching in a school where I get one hour a week with my students and I'm not supposed to expect more than one hour a week outside of class for the subject I'm teaching. Um, How can I do what you're proposing within that framework? And I thought for a second, and I got that feeling in the pit of my stomach, and I did what I do. I can't help myself. I said, you can't do it in that time frame, because what we're talking about takes time. It takes time for reflection. It takes time for teaching. And then it takes time for practice to cultivate the mental habits that we're discussing here. It's not the same as dispensing information. And so it's about a two-year process, in my estimation, to lay a firm foundation in the way we do it in Wittenberg Academy with rhetoric one, two, and three. It takes about two years to actually internalize those skill sets that are the aim of teaching in tandem, dialectic and rhetoric, according to the pattern of Richard Weber, I might say. Uh, teaching in tandem, dialectic and rhetoric in order to cultivate wisdom and eloquence. You don't cultivate wisdom and eloquence in a discrete unit in a semester or two of a high school curriculum. You don't learn how to be a virtuoso on the piano in a one-year segment of learning. It takes a long time. And so to try to figure out a way, first of all, where you can do it efficiently, quickly, and painlessly is a fool's errand. Second of all, to set up a system where the teachers are expected to teach a mass number of students and do twice the work for half the pay with no benefits is problematic from an ethical point of view. I'm just going to let that rest. But I have to say that. And by the way, I didn't really get a feeling in the pit of my stomach when I said that. That's residual from that very conversation I had in the conference I was just involved with. Formation takes time. We're sculpting and we're forming. We're not 3D printing, right? Nice. Nice. You're in tune enough with the technology that that metaphor would occur to you. And it's brilliant. It's perfect. 
It's wonderful. That technology is wonderful and it's quick. And now they're talking about creating stakes with that technology. That's terrible. To save the meat supply. <laughs> so anyway, the weaverisms I thought we should cover are metaphysical dream, which also relates to the tyrannizing image. The tyrannizing image is important for this reason. The tyrannizing image and the metaphysical dream are more or less the same concept. And it's an attempt by Weaver to really discuss something that's so subconscious, it's inexplicable. But essentially what it is, is when he discusses social cohesion, he tries to point out that there is a tyrannizing image that keeps, it has a centrifugal force that keeps things in line. So it tyrannizes in the sense that if you need to order a society and you need to maintain that order, you can't have enough cops on the street corners in order to enforce that or you have no freedoms left. And so the tyrannizing image is what helps build self-restraint in individuals, which keeps order. It's essential to a free society, okay? And so the metaphysical dream is that taken for granted collection of primary assumptions, presuppositions that we don't really think about when we're engaging in valuation, but we act from them. So it's dreamlike. It's so non-rational. It's not something you consciously reflect upon all the time, but occasionally you have to teach it and talk about it. So the best way to do that is have a really extensive podcast. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Metaphysical dream, tyrannizing image, spoiled child psychology comes up in distinction and hierarchy. I already talked about God terms and devil terms and Kenneth Burke and how progress was the God term in Weaver's day. And then finally, at the very end, he starts doing kind of previews of the chapters of ideas have consequences because distinction and hierarchy is the first essay and it actually serves as kind of a bridge to the rest of the book. It's like a second introduction almost. He closes by saying something about sentiment. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. It's very striking the way he talks about sentiment. And then lo and behold, one of the chapters of Ideas Have Consequences is entitled The Unsentimental Sentiment. It's difficult to parse out all the highlighted important areas of this essay and discreetly discuss them one at a time <clears throat> without just essentially going through the whole essay because it's so tightly woven, it's so seamless, and it's so prescient, like you say, right from the very beginning, Weaver has insights that are as profound and salient as any I've ever read. Listen to this. This is the grand solution of socialism which is itself the materialistic offspring of bourgeois capitalism. It clarifies much to see that socialism is in origin a middle class and not a proletarian concept. The middle class owes to its social location 
and a special fondness for security and complacency. Protected on either side by classes which must absorb shocks, it would forget the hazards of existence. The lower class, close to the reality of need, develops a manly fortitude and is sometimes touched with nobility in the face of its precariousness. The upper class bears responsibility and cannot avoid leading a life of drama because much is put into its hands. Lightnings of favor or of discontent flash in its direction, and he at the top of the hierarchy, whether it rests on true values or not, knows that he is playing for his head. In between lies the besotted middle class grown enormous under the new orientation of Western man. Loving comfort, risking little, terrified by the thought of change, its aim is to establish a materialistic civilization which will banish threats to its complacency. It has conventions, not ideals. It is washed rather than clean. The plight of Europe today is the direct result of the bourgeois ascendancy and its corrupted worldview. Wow. I'm going to repeat the line that speaks loudest today. The besotted middle class, grown enormous under the new orientation of Western man, loving comfort, risking little, Terrified by the thought of change, its aim is to establish a materialistic civilization which will banish threats to its complacency. And if it takes too long for your packages to get to you, we'll guarantee them same day. Because we're building warehouses. We're going to do this on a mass scale. And we'll do it cheaply. And your consumerist tendencies will be addressed immediately so that all of your appetites can be addressed in a moment's time. Well, I keep wanting to say, once again, Weaver is prophetic. Right. Okay, moving on. The dullest member of a conservative legislative committee seeking the source of threats to institutions does not fail to see that those doctrines which exalt material interests over spiritual to the confounding of rational distinctions among men are positively incompatible with the society he is elected to represent. Look, this is not compatible with a free society. This is not compatible with virtue. This is not compatible with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we still want to engage, if that's the society that we want, then we have to stop this madness. That's the argument against Sharia law. That's the argument against abortion. That's the argument against arbitrary wars in other parts of the world. There are a lot of applications of that line of thinking, but to have the courage and the political fortitude to actually say we have to stop this madness because it's not compatible with our aim of society or you 
people cannot have your way because what you're proposing is madness. There is a town council that voted unanimously to not defund their police, abolish their police department. You know why? So Sharia patrols can do their thing. It, it gives them, under the name of equality, it gives them the opportunity to enforce their law, their special law, which at root is incompatible with the Western common law tradition. And we cannot coexist as a free society and allow that at the same time. But that creates a dilemma, right? Because we believe in freedom of religion and free expression. And so it's something that's very difficult that has to be addressed. Right above the section from which you were just reading, he says, traditional society was organized around king and priest, soldier and poet, peasant and artisan. Now distinctions of vocation fade out and the new organization, if such it may be termed, is to be around capacities to consume. And I think that feeds right in with what you were talking about. And he goes on, if we attach more Mm -hmm. significance to feeling than to thinking, we shall soon, by a simple extension, attach more to wanting than to deserving. And I think the example is right there. That's worth reading again. Would you do it? Absolutely. Traditional society was organized around king and priest, soldier and poet, peasant and artisan. Now distinctions of vocation fade out, and the new organization, if such it may be termed, is to be around capacities to consume. If we attach more significance to feeling than to thinking, we shall soon, by a simple extension, attach more to wanting than to deserving. Hence the spoiled child psychology. This is what he means by the spoiled child psychology. By spoiled child psychology, Weaver in the 1940s, in the late 1940s, was suggesting what you just read, that the focus on materialism would create mass consumerist society, which would cultivate individuals who felt entitled to have all the best all the time. Okay, moving on. The dullest member of a conservative legislative committee seeking the source of threats to institutions does not fail to see that those doctrines which exalt material interests over spiritual to the confounding of rational distinctions among men are positively incompatible with the society he is elected to represent. For expressing such views, he is likely to be condemned as ignorant or selfish because normally he does not express them very well. Let us therefore find him a gifted spokesman. (laughs) Let us therefore find him a gifted spokesman. Here is Shakespeare on the subject of subversive activity. Oh, when degree is shaked, which is the ladder to all high designs, Then enterprise is sick, 
How could communities, degrees in schools and brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenity and due of birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic place? Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere oppugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility, and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right, or rather, right and wrong, between whose endless jar justice resides, should lose their names, and so should justice too. Then everything includes itself in power. Power into will, will into appetite, and appetite an, uh, a universal wolf so doubly seconded with will and power, must make perforce an universal prey, and last, eat up himself. That's from Troilus and Cressida. And Milton, despite his force, Weaver continues, Milton, despite his fierce republicanism, seems to have agreed that, quote, orders and degrees jar not with liberty, but well consist. Our legislator may find support, too, in the first book of Corinthians, in which Paul defends diversities of operations. Paul offers the metaphysical argument, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? That's 1 Corinthians 12, 18-19. The program of social democracy would take away this, quote, ladder to all high designs. It would do so because high design is an extremely unsettling conception. It may involve arduous effort, self-denial, sleepless nights, all of which are repugnant to the bourgeoisie. On the other hand, the goal of social democracy is scientific feeding, producing meat with a, what do you call those printer? 3D printer. Seriously, what they were proposing or what they're experimenting with somewhere in Europe is they're growing meat cultures from umbilical cord blood of animals in a Petri dish. And then they load it into a printer. They, uh, build a steak with fat cells, red meat cells, and so forth, and then they allow it to grow, and then they intend to eventually market it. They're doing this in part through the rationalization that it's more humane than having meat packing in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. This is a prime example of the breakdown of order, an ordered society. Because if we see ourselves on the same level as animals, if we see ourselves none other than animals, then this is a logical end. It's all equivalent. It's all equal. We're all equal. There is no distinction. There is no hierarchy. 
And so therefore, when you... there is no right and wrong. There's no good or bad. There's no right or wrong. But there is 3D printed meat. There's plenty <laughs> to consume. Right. And someone's going to make a big buck on it. So ultimately, I'm a conservative, right? I'll confess right publicly. I'm a Reagan Republican. That's the era I grew up in. I love America. I don't like communism. But I don't have... I don't genuflect to corporations and, you know, multinationals and economic gain and profit, you know? So there's, when you start to read Weaver's social critique, you start to realize there's a line of conservatism that sounds the alarm about unmitigated capitalism and total war, for example. Total war from a chivalric point of view is repugnant because boundaries are supposed to protect innocence from the ravages of war. That's called Weaver's essay entitled The Dialectic on Total War. Very timely in his day. Weaver's primary task is to elucidate the distinction between equality and fraternity. Okay, so now we're at the point in the essay, and I apologize, the, the text that we're using on the rhetoricring.com, Weaver's Top 10, has no page numbers. So I just kind of have to refer to places where a paragraph starts, okay? Perfect. So once he gets into the body of the text, it's very clear that what he's doing is contrasting equality with fraternity, which is an interesting and clever move because that was the banner under which the French Revolution was conducted. Right? That's right. But he's showing yes. the difference between equality and fraternity. And fraternity is grounded. It's a family model. So it's grounded in distinction and hierarchy. Okay. So that, that paragraph that unfolds after he says the comity of peoples and following is very pivotal in this essay. And I'm not going to focus on that because I can't focus on every line. But I will read this part for our audience. Nothing is more manifest than that as this social distance has diminished and all groups have moved nearer equality, suspicion and hostility have increased. In the present world, there is little of trust and less of loyalty. People do not know what to expect of one another. Leaders will not lead and servants will not serve. It is a matter of common observation, too, that people meet most easily when they know their position. Okay, this has to do with place, knowing one's place, identifying with a place, serving from a place, and not commingling various vocations and people who have different callings trying to do one another. That leads to 
disharmony in a body, in a church body, in a social body, in a civic body. And in a family body. Yes. Yes. If their work and authority are defined, they can proceed on fixed assumptions and conduct themselves without embarrassment toward inferior and superior. When the rule of equality obtains, however, no one knows where he belongs. Because he has been assured that he is, quote, just as good as anybody else, unquote. He's likely to suspect that he's getting less than his desserts. Give me more. I want more. Shakespeare concluded his wonderful discourse on degree with reference to an envious fever. And when Mark Twain, in the role of Connecticut Yankee, undertook to destroy the hierarchy of Camelot, he was furious to find that serfs and others of the lower order were not resentful of their condition. He adopted then the typical Jacobin procedure of instilling hatred of all superiority. Class envy. Resentment, as Richard Hertz has made plain, may well prove the dynamite which will finally wreck Western society. I feel no need to elaborate. Moving on. Then there's the famous dichotomy of freedom from versus freedom to. Now, Weaver doesn't develop that to any large extent. It's just a very small little paragraph where he discusses it because even as when I started college in the 1980s, back in Weaver's day, freedom from and freedom to was a dichotomy that was very popularly discussed and it was the starting point for a lot of lines of analysis in political discourse, ethics, and so forth. So he doesn't spend a lot of time developing that concept, but I think today it's kind of been lost to some extent. So he says another problem of egalitarianism is the whole idea of freedom from versus freedom to. Here's where he talks about it. There are other aspects to the dilemma of radical egalitarianism, a defense often employed by the more sophisticated in that democratic equality allows each to develop his potentialities. This plausible argument involves grave questions about the nature of things. It is here implied that man is like a seed having some imminent design of germination so that for his flowering, He needs that liberty, which is freedom from. If this is the whole account, it can only mean that our determination is naturalistic and that our growth is merely the unfolding of a plan established purely by nature. One need hardly add that this conception accepts orientation from below and assumes that man's destiny is to be natural, to develop like a plant. This makes impossible any thought of discipline, which would, under these circumstances, be a force constraining what nature had intended. But all teleology rejects freedom from in favor of freedom to. That men are a field of wildflowers, naturally good in their growing, is the romantic fallacy. Teleology teleology is... um, 
the idea of ultimate goods. It's the study of the ultimate goods, telos, what is the highest good for man, and so forth. The idea that man is simply an intelligent animal leads to the romantic fallacy. It's a way of looking at man. And, and I want to point out that ultimately what Weaver is shining the light on is the image of man that is inherent in a mindset like the egalitarian's hold. And so in this paragraph, he's illuminating freedom from versus freedom to, to try and illustrate the sort of freedom that is consistent with an elevated view of man, which depends upon distinction and hierarchy for that elevation. Does that help? I think so. In this idea of freedom from and freedom to, is there a connection back to this idea of service and vocation versus consumerism? Okay. Well, I think there is a connection. And I think Weaver's overall point is that in order to be a responsible actor, in other words, to take responsible action as a leader, as a leader of a family, as a lawmaker, so forth, one needs to be responsible. You exercise responsibility relative to your vocation, right? And to your place. And so distinction and hierarchy are vital in that scheme because they provide the framework which in you exercise your freedom to be a responsible actor. What the materialistic person and what he calls the besotted middle class who are all consumed with their consumption and their material well-being are only interested in any impediments to their consuming. And so they're interested more in freedom from, and hence you tend to define freedom on those terms. That's the slippery slope. That makes perfect that sense. Was, yeah, okay. That, that's pretty much what you were after, I think. So. Yes, yes. And then, and then we come to the most important paragraph, not for this work, not for understanding Weaver, but for this entire podcast series. It begins, it has been said countless times in this country that democracy cannot exist without education. In terms of the aims of this podcast and of Wittenberg Academy, this is the most important paragraph in Weaver. It has been said countless times in this country that democracy cannot exist without education. The truth concealed in this observation is that only education can be depended on to bring men to see the hierarchy of values. That is another way of saying what has also been affirmed before, that democracy cannot exist without aristocracy. The aristocracy is a leadership which, if it is to endure, must be constantly recruited from democracy. 
Hence, it is equally true that aristocracy cannot exist without democracy. But what we have failed to provide against is the corruption of the system of recruitment by equalitarian dogma and the allurements of materialism. There is no difficulty in securing enough agreement for action on the point that education should serve the needs of the people, but all hinges on the interpretation of needs. If the primary need of man is to perfect his spiritual being and prepare for immortality, then education of the mind and the passions will take precedence over all else. The growth of materialism, however, however, has made this a consideration remote and even incomprehensible to the majority. Those who maintain that education should prepare one for living successfully in this world have won a practically complete victory. I feel like I need to elaborate on a statement that I made vociferously about 20 minutes ago. This knowledge will pass away. I was trying to articulate a sense of humility so that I don't sound like I think rhetorical studies is a panacea and an end-all and do-all. It's just that in the liberal arts curriculum, rhetoric was considered a capstone study because human excellence is defined in terms of doing great things and speaking great words. Leadership involves eloquence. Being an articulate and contributing member of a free society involves being able to clearly articulate your points of view and engage in the free market place of ideas and so forth. So it's important for that sense, but all of that entails my work for the life of the world in community, serving my neighbor, vocation. So in that regard, we are preparing people for a good life a life lived well, so that their loves are ordered properly and their alignment toward the true, the good, and the beautiful is important. And so I think you can see why those lines take us right to the heart of the matter of why we're doing this podcast in the first place. Most certainly. And as we've discussed before in a previous episode, the idea of transcendence, when you eliminate that, when you discard the, the transcendent, all you have left is the base. And all you have left is this idea that this world is all there is, and you only live once, so let's live it up. And forget my neighbor, it's all about me, and what I want rather than serving my neighbor. Yeah, and we understand that conversation within the rubric of rights versus responsibility. That's Correct. how that's commonly phrased. Okay, so as promised, the final passage provides 
an entree to discuss the unsentimental sentiment. That's another Weaverism that's really powerful. And it's in terms of ordo amores, the ordered loves, the sentiments that we hold that are unsentimental. Isn't that beautiful? I love the it way is. he puts that. We're, we're not sentimental about that. In, in other words, they go deep and they're very important. They're vital. They make valuation and meaning making and choice making all possible from a Christian point of view. And we're not sentimental about these sentiments. And here's where you get that concept. Now, such a look at the nature of things is imperative. For our conception of metaphysical reality finally governs our conception of everything else. And if we feel that creation does not express purpose, it is impossible to find an authorization for purpose in our lives. Indeed, the insertion of purpose in a world we felt to be purposeless would be a form of sentimentality. That's the sentimental sentiment. The paragraph starts, in other words, is precisely because we have lost our grasp of the nature of knowledge that we have nothing to educate with for the salvation of our order. Yeah, for the salvation of our order is something conservatives should be very, very concerned with because that's what we're trying to conserve. That's why his book was subtitled, the very last collection of his essays was subtitled The Cultural Crisis of Our Time, Visions of Order. How do you have social order in a pluralistic society that is falling apart? Um, it wasn't falling apart in his day, but he was trying to warn us off of that, that the consequences of the ideas we were pursuing as a nation were going to have the combined effect of crumbling the very pillars of our free society the greatest experiment in the history of the world in free government. And here we are today. We're no longer dealing with uh, preservation of that order. We're now dealing with the collapse. And this education that we're trying to provide is so very important to that effort. Weaver says the formula of popular education has failed democracy because democracy has rebelled at the thought of sacrifice. The sacrifice of time and material goods without which there is no training in intellectual discipline. The spoiled child psychology of which I shall say something later, that's another chapter and ideas have consequences, has sought a royal road to learning in this way, when even its institutions of learning serve primarily the ends of gross animal existence, its last recourse to order is destroyed by appetite. We consume ourselves. We, we eat the rich, right? Right. That's a popular slogan. It is. Never thought I would have seen that in this country. Without distinction and hierarchy there can be no aspiration. But there can also be no aspiration without contentment. And I think all of those things go together 
that distinction yeah. and hierarchy there's there's security in distinction and hierarchy but you can't have security without contentment yes jocelyn yes without distinction and hierarchy aspiration is not possible so with egalitarianism aspiration is replaced by appetite and so it goes in field after field in question after question in pillar after pillar there are central questions that can be approached according to this way of thinking that are lost and that necessarily crumble if you adopt wrong-headed thinking and even saying wrong-headed thinking this day and age is unacceptable it's because tolerance is a god term and to that point weaver says it is a system of quantitative comparison its effect therefore has been to collapse the traditional hierarchy and to produce economic man whose destiny is mere activity. And do we not see that today? Yes, absolutely. The conservatives of our day have a case which only their want of imagination keeps them from making use of in the proposition that levelers are foes of freedom. Where simple massness exists, Everyone is in everyone else's way, and certain perilous liberty has been traded for stultification. That's well put, too. I mean, we could play this game for hours, right? We could. Line we could. after line after line. And hopefully our readers will avail themselves of this entire essay because as we've said over and over, there is so much in there. I'm so happy that you appreciate this as much as I do. It is fantastic, and I'm absolutely loving it. As am I. Our coming episode, we are going to, to tackle uh, the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric and the cultural role of rhetoric. Yes, ma'am. They're highly related to one another. They dovetail nicely. By the way, in our rhetoric block, when our students read the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric, they also read selections from the Phaedrus. What he says there about the allegory of the charioteer is very relevant to the study of rhetoric. So I focus on that with them. But anyway, the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric is a really good companion piece to reading the Phaedrus when people are studying that Socratic dialogue. Anyway, it's great commentary on it. And so the cultural role of rhetoric and the Phaedrus and the nature of rhetoric work together beautifully. And our podcast is going to take a big turn away from pedagogy toward the relationship of dialectic and rhetoric and the cultural role of rhetoric. So we're shifting gears. We're like an 18-wheeler. We're hitting high gear. We're out on the interstate now, and we're going to roll down the highway.
I can't wait. It will be fantastic, as has our time together today. Dr. Tallman, thank you for walking us through distinction and hierarchy. We have much upon which to chew, and thankfully, it's all real meat and not 3D printed steak. <laughs> well done. Thank you. I feel like you walked us through quite a bit of this because our back and forth today was unparalleled uh, in our previous sessions. And it's just illustrative of how rich, how full-bodied, how prescient, and how substantive this essay is. I was pulling quotes. You were pulling quotes. Very little elaboration and discussion about them because Weaver says it all so well. Very true. Thanks, Dr. Tolman. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at www.wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.